Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. The sands are shifting, ladies and gentlemen, and we will have to stay alert to make sure that this country does not emerge from this pandemic as some kind of make-believe socialist utopian nightmare. Battle lines are already being drawn, I can tell you that, by those on the left who know they can never win power through the ballot box, who know they would never gain enough voter confidence to win an election, but instead, led by the rebel lefty teachers, the union movement is already preparing for a long-drawn-out fight with the government over the reopening of of primary schools. More and more councils are joining forces with the hard left. National Education Union uh, are refusing to implement Boris Johnson's plans for the school gates to open on June the 1st. That's the militant teaching union, of course. And, of course, it's back. And so is the state, according to Frances O'Grady, who is uh, the TUC General Secretary. She's calling for the government to form a National Recovery Council in response to the coronavirus pandemic. Rather ominously, she is quoted as saying, the union is back. After all, uh, what is it about these lefties who think that anyone in this great country of ours uh, wants to hand them the power that they could not win legitimately at an election? Not only do we not want them, their policies and their socialist leaders have been roundly rejected in droves. We need to hear from you on this today. Send a strong message to Labour, the unions and the militants out there. We don't want you and we don't want your nasty politics. So get lost. 0344 499 1000. Coming up later on today, we have another edition uh, of the rather watered-down Prime Minister's Questions. What will Keir Starmer have to say for himself? Will he bore us all to sleep? And why is Parliament going to recess in the middle of this crisis? Believe it or not, after the actual Prime Minister's Questions and the afternoon in Parliament, Parliament will rise and nobody will come back until June the 2nd. Well, that seems a bit of a ridiculous thing to do, doesn't it? What on earth is going on? 0344 499 1000. And for our homeschooling section today, we'll be finding out about classical music uh, in the company of David Wooding, who is the political editor of The Sun on Sunday, but also uh, a bit of a whiz when it comes to classical music. We'll find out what the difference is between Mozart and Beethoven. It's all happening at 12.30. You're listening to me, Mike Graham, on the fastest growing radio station on the planet. It is, of course... Talk Radio. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Now, don't forget, of course, we are live streaming on YouTube, on Facebook and on Twitter from our brand new studios high above the River Thames over here in London. Uh, It's a magnificent day, the hottest day of the year, we understand. Uh, There's no doubt going to be loads of people out and about uh, enjoying the sunshine, uh, enjoying what is now left of uh, the back end of May. Because, of course, as we edge ever closer to June the 1st, all sorts of things should be happening. We should be lifting the lockdown a little bit more. We should be talking about going back to school, but more and more councils have now joined uh, the merry throng up and down the country uh, of recalcitrant people who say, oh no, we definitely don't think it's safe enough to send the children back to school. We're going to be attempting to find out precisely what it is about the medical situation uh, that is stopping some people from wanting to send their children to school, some teachers from not wanting to go to school to teach them, and others who are quite happy to do so. It seems very odd indeed. Let us begin the show uh, as we mean to go on. Let us talk to John Rental, uh, who is, of course, the chief political commentator at The Independent. John, a very good morning to you. Hello, Mike. 
Very nice to talk to you. Very nice to hear from you on uh, in, in our new spank, new brand spanking new studios, which are very, very posh, I must say. Um, and we will try, uh, if we can, to get you on some video. Oh, we've got you on video. Excellent stuff. I can see that you've got a very fine bookcase behind you as well, which uh, I will not examine uh, for any dodgy titles in case uh, of embarrassment. But let's talk about this uh, sort of rise of of the hard left, because basically what we seem to be looking at is that lots and lots of uh, unions, which may or may not be described as militant, uh, are taking the government on over the schools issue. It seems to be the new battleground. Um, and the lots of predictions I'm reading this morning that the government may indeed retreat from the 1st of June as a date to open primary schools. Yeah, well, I don't think that's entirely fair, Mike. Why not? Um, well, because, I mean, they are trade unions, after all. They are... Um, you know they are they exist to defend the interests of their members uh and you know i think the government has pushed pushed ahead with this quite fast which is which is fair enough but i think the sensible thing to do would be to let schools come back if they want to uh, and if their teachers want to because there's no point in forcing people to go to work if they don't feel it's safe to do so and i you know you can you could say that the unions have jumped on this for ideological reasons i don't think that's I don't think that's right. I mean, I, I do think the NEU, which used to be called the NUT, um, it, you know, it is controlled by a bunch of ideologues. That is absolutely true. But on this occasion, I think they are standing up for the interests of their members. And fair enough. Well, they, they are standing up for the interests of their members, but they are not standing up for the interests of teachers or indeed children, because there are many more teachers who are not in that particular union who are more than happy to go back and work. And it was never a question of being forced back to work. Nobody ever said that you would be forced to go back to work as a teacher or indeed that you'd be forced to send your children back to school if you didn't want to. Well, no, that's that's why I think it should be allowed to happen gradually. And I think um, it would have been more sensible for the government to say, you know, from the 1st of June, um, if if you want to go back to go back to school, um, it's up to schools to decide whether to open or not. Uh, and, um, you know, I think that would have gradually led to uh, to, to a step by step uh, opening, which is what the government was planning anyway. I mean, they weren't right. planning to for all schools to open. They're just going to get some years in primary school to start as a as a as a sort yeah. of phased introduction. But, but this is what I'm saying about the ideological debate and the war that's going on currently, because the, the battle lines were drawn up not by the government, but by people who misinterpreted what the government said. The government said more or less what you've just described. On the 1st of June, we would like to see schools going back. We would like to see the beginning of that process. They did not say at 9am on the 1st of June, every single school will have every single gate open, every single class restarted, and every single pupil in the country must attend, or else they'll all be fined. They didn't say anything. No, that's that is true, um, and I and you know we have seen a lot of academies uh, saying that they, they they do want to go back, and uh, we saw today that the the BMA, the the doctors' union, has uh, slightly softened its uh, opposition to uh, opposition to uh, to schools going back, yeah. and I think I think there is going to be a general mood over the next couple of weeks. It may not happen by the first of June, but I think the general mood is that we've got to start getting back to some kind of normal uh, and i think that's not just about schools i think i think the government ought to be uh, fast tracking uh, reopening so-called non-essential shops because you know we've proved that you can you can you can maintain a decent level of social distancing and still go to the shops mm. uh, so why don't the why don't both shops and the and the other shops open as well well, this is it. I mean, I have to admit that, uh, you know, teaching in a classroom of five and six year olds, I'm sure is very different to going to your local Tesco's. But nevertheless, all of these people who are saying that they don't think it's safe to go back to school, knowing what they know about uh, how low the level of transmission is likely to be between children and adults, uh, presumably have been happily enough uh, picking up their, their full 100 percent wages, while lots of other people have either been furloughed uh, who have, or who have stayed working in those very supermarkets. Well, absolutely. And that's why uh, I, th I think the public mood ought to start shifting uh, towards some kind of uh, return to normality, because I think people recognise you can't, you know, you can't just pay, uh, what is it, 10 million workers just to stay at home yeah. for forever. No, of uh, when The level of infections and the level of deaths is, is coming right down. Uh, and I think uh, I think people are going to start to 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 want to go back to work but i mean you go back to work but i mean you can you can understand why people are afraid because the government as you said uh has frightened the life out of people with uh, with an awful lot of uh, 
talk about how dangerous this disease is. Yeah, well, that's true as well. And so, however, though, I do find it slightly ironic that the only people who are frightened to go back to work seem to be members of a union, like the Transport Workers Union, who are also now saying, despite the fact that trains have been running and the tubers have been running and buses have been running, say that they can't go back to work because it's too dangerous. Same for lots of schools. I mean, lots of schools have actually remained open during this period because they've been teaching vulnerable children and, and children of key workers. Yeah, no, I mean, but I think there's a difference between schools and uh, and bus drivers. I mean, bus drivers do seem to have uh, taken a very uh, severe toll of this disease, mm. uh, whereas teachers, on the whole, uh, do not. I mean, that seems to be a fairly safe profession. Yeah. Um, and, you, you know, I mean, I know the evidence is mixed, but actually, you know, I, th- I think I think reopening the schools is a fairly low risk thing to do, whereas I do, I do think buses... Buses and tubes are obviously much more of a problem, and uh, that's going to be very difficult. It's going to be getting the economy uh, up and running uh, with uh, with public transport running at sort of 10% capacity or whatever it is. Yeah, which is why it seems absolutely unbelievable that Sadiq Khan would think this was a great week to put the congestion charge back on, thereby making it very, very difficult for lots of people who are key workers and who do have relatively low wages to drive safely to their place of work. Well, I... Well, I... I'm not sure if it's if that was his decision. I, that may have been a condition of the bailout of uh, TFL that the government uh, uh, gave him. So, um, well, he's never done anything. I'm not sure he's, of the he's, facts never, he's, he's never done anything before that the government have urged him to do. So I don't know why he would suddenly start now. It suits his narrative to claim that <laughs> well, he was made to do it. But they've never been able to make him do anything else. Well, no, they had the whip hand on giving them giving him the money because otherwise TFL was going to go bust. So I think. Uh, uh, I think he had to do what he was told on that one. Well, we'll see about that. But I do find it slightly ironic that on the uh, uh, in the middle of the week that the government's arguing for schools to all open, uh, they're, they're taking off the next couple of weeks because uh, it's parliamentary recess. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's just one week, Mike, and it's absolute standard procedure. They're going to, you know, I mean, admittedly, they they're going to stop work uh, this afternoon. Yes, uh, but that's because. They're working. They're working a three-day week in Parliament at the moment. They're just yeah. working Mondays, Tuesdays, uh, and then they're going to take next week off, and then back on on the week after. And then, the, I mean, there's going to be a huge row this afternoon, which is going to be very uh, interesting to watch about whether MPs will still be allowed to take part uh, by video uh, when they come back on mm. the second of June. I mean, right. uh, that that has not been decided yet, and unless MPs actually get to vote on it, which uh, I think they will do this afternoon. Uh, those regulations allowing them to take part remotely are going to lapse. Yes, which surely would not mean that they'd all have to filter back in. I mean, you know as well as I do that it's all very well saying they're only working a three-day week, but, but MPs will tell you that they're doing other work, you know, if they're not necessarily in the chamber or if they're not even in Westminster. I mean, a lot of them have remained in their constituencies over this period of time because they know that travelling is, is not really something they should be doing. But, yeah, I mean, I just, yeah, but, I mean, you, you've yeah. got, they've got this uncanny knack. You say it's only a week, but this is Wednesday today. You know, they won't be back working properly probably until uh, a week on Tuesday. Now, now, to me, that's a two-week holiday. <laughs> OK, well, yeah, it's not a holiday, as you've just pointed out. They are working, uh, they are working uh, even when they're not actually in Westminster. Uh, and, you know, we're not in the middle of the crisis now. We're in the sort of... Really? Uh, we're in the rather sure? complicated... Well, we're in the phase of trying to trying to come out of it, which I admit is, is, is difficult, but it's not as if Parliament has to sit in permanent session. Uh, throughout all this, no. I think uh, I think they are they are. In, I mean, it is just a tradition that they take a week off at this time of year. I know, uh, and it does it doesn't look great. But uh, you know, I mean, I'm not sure that there's anything that they would be doing next week. That uh, well, it's all. I mean, you might we, as well you might as well say it's a tradition in the Graham family household to take a week at half term and go to Greece. But sadly, my tradition will not be able to be upheld <laughs> this year, uh, whereas theirs is. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> okay, you know, and the you nine thousand, the, the nine thousand people that are going to be laid off from Rolls Royce are pretty sure we're still in the middle of the crisis as well. Yeah, no, of course, of course we are. But I mean, are there things that Parliament needs to do? I mean, you know, they they could have an argument about whether have an argument about whether the schools can go back or not. But I mean, I'm not sure that's going to take us much further forward. Yes, indeed. Now, can you describe uh, Keir Starmer's performance thus far as leader of the Labour Party, please, without using the word forensic? <laughs> yeah, well, because the the interesting thing is that it, 
I mean, uh, it hasn't uh, followed the F word particularly because uh, actually he was very good uh, at Prime Minister's questions uh, last week, but not by not by being a sort of lawyer, not mm. by asking the really difficult, detailed questions. He actually asked a sort of sweeping rhetorical question, this sort of, sort of how on earth has it come to this, mm. which was a, which was a sort of dramatic sort of political uh, statement rather than a, rather than a legal one. Yeah. Uh, and that really that really knocked the prime minister off balance, I think. And the fact that he went after him on uh, on what the government's advice had been on care homes, um, which is not exactly constructive uh, opposition, uh, I thought, uh, but it was extremely effective at, uh, at making the prime minister look extremely uncomfortable. Yeah, I mean, the trouble is, I think the prime minister is not quite on top form. And also the format now of prime minister's questions does not really suit his style of, uh, of sort of cut and thrust. And I just don't think Boris Johnson uh, is performing really at anything like uh, 70% of his normal uh, level. Well, I'm not sure if that's down to him, his health or the or the uh, empty chamber. I think it's much more to do with the the fact that, that we're in the middle of a very serious crisis mm. and, uh, and people are dying. And that means that your, means that usual. your usual uh, Boris Johnson routine of cheering people up and, and playing with words and making people laugh uh, is completely unsuitable. So we've had the sort of hangdog Johnson mm. Uh, at the dispatch box where he has to just come to the dispatch box and say, yes, it is all terrible mm. and I bitterly regret it and very sad. Uh, and so that's not playing to 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 Boris Johnson's strengths, yeah. which are you know optimism and cheerfulness. Yes. Also, I don't think he's been helped by the scientific community because I think one of the things that we now know is that the advice that he's been following and the science that they've been following, as they keep mentioning uh, sort of every second minute, um, has changed so much over the course of the last two months that it's almost impossible now to think back to the beginning of all of this, where the advice was completely different to where it is now. Well, yes, and you'd expect the scientific advice to change as the as the more facts came to light, wouldn't you? Well, I mean, I mean except Therese... that in that case, the original scientific advice was based on ignorance, was it? Well, yeah, but I mean, that's what you're always doing in the in, at the beginning of a of a of an epidemic of this kind. You you don't know enough about the disease to to know how to respond. So clearly, looking back, uh, you know, some of that scientific advice wasn't as uh, wasn't as good as it could have mm. been. But I mean, you know, that's that's a very difficult uh, balance to strike. And I thought Therese Coffey uh, said the most sensible thing a cabinet minister has ever said yesterday. Uh, she's the DWP uh, secretary. Yes. Uh, she said, well, you know, if if the scientific advice, advice uh, was wrong, looking back in hindsight, then I, you know, I'm not surprised that people blame the government for it. But I mm. mean, it is rather unfair blame the government for following the advice at the time, uh, which now looks, with hindsight, to have been uh, to have been too late or yes. too too early, too different, no, too I agree. different, whatever, whatever. As, as ever, John, we can finish our conversation oh. with, 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 with an agreement because you're absolutely right. It's very unfair to blame the government who, who were vowing to follow the science if the science turned out to be mistaken. Yeah, but I mean, this is what often happens. And people just, you know, there is a sort of anti-politics rage around, and there has been for a long time, which is that people, as soon as something goes wrong, people look for people to blame. Yeah. And they immediately demand an independent public inquiry uh, led by a judge uh, with the ability to, 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 to uh, take witnesses on oath and all the rest of it. Uh, because, you know, they want someone to go to jail as soon as, um, you know, things go wrong. Hmm. And... That is that you you cannot operate politics uh, on on that basis on the assumption that you know the moment anything goes wrong, uh, anybody who who with hindsight uh, made a mistake has to go to jail. It's just not it's, it's just not a way to run a country. No, I couldn't agree with you more, John. Thank you as ever for talking to us, John Rental, chief political commentator at the Independent. Very sensible man. Uh, always welcome on this show, uh, no matter what his views are. But of course, we end up agreeing with each other that the science has been wrong. The science was not correct at the time that the government said they were following it. So what on earth are they supposed to do? They can't reject it. 
They can't say we can't use the science. We can't believe what the scientists are telling us. Therefore, uh, we'll just pick up on something else. That is not the way that it works. Across the UK, online, on DAB and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. We are sitting here in 28 degree heat. Well, we're not actually in 28 degree heat. It's 28 degrees outside, out there in this beautiful vista that I can see uh, of the skyline of London. I can see Canary Wharf. I can see uh, the Tower of London. I can see Tower Bridge. I can see HMS Belfast. I can see the monument. Uh, I can see where the Fire of London started. It's fantastic because you know what happens when you have a big window to look out on? Uh, You become worldly wise. You become immediately better informed because you can see what you're actually talking about. You can see what you're doing. You're not in a dark corridor looking only at yourself. That would be a problem for me. Now we're in this new studio. We have a new outwardly glorious feeling about the world. And as I said, I've now got my new method of working out when the pandemic is going to end. Uh, It's when I run out of soap. It's as simple as that. It may not be very scientific, but I'm going with it anyway. Coming up in this hour, we're going to talk about China uh, because China uh, is at the very focus of Donald Trump's anger at the moment. Donald Trump says uh, that the World Health Health Organization messed up over China. He's correct. He said that China caused the pandemic. He's also correct about that. And I'm saying they should be paying up and compensating us for all the losses that we've suffered economically and also, uh, unfortunately, uh, on a human scale as well. I want to know what China is going to do to make up for what they have done to the rest of the world. 0344 499 1000. We're going to talk to James Rogers, director of the Global Britain program at the Henry Jackson Society. He's done a report called Breaking the China Supply Chain. And it is no more important subject than this right now that we're going to talk about. Coming up, uh, we'll also be talking to Gareth Shaw, from which we'll be telling us about how you can take a payment holiday from your credit card bills, if you so wish, and how that will affect you. Uh, And lots more besides. Lots of you want to talk uh, about the hard left trying to take over the country without actually being elected to do so. The problem with going back to school and all manner of other things as well. You know the number, 0344 499 1000. You'll listen to me, Mike Graham, on the fastest growing radio station on the planet. It is, of course, Talk Radio. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Let's say a very good morning to James Rogers from the Henry Jackson Society. James, thanks very much for joining us. Hello, Mike. How are you? Yeah, very well indeed. Uh, Donald Trump has taken some uh, flack over the course of the last few weeks for all manner of things, but I think very few people would disagree with him uh, in his attitude towards China lately. Yeah, I agree with you. I think that the Chinese Chinese state, the regime in China, has been behaving in a way that's just completely unacceptable, not only in relation to coronavirus, but also in relation to the wolf warrior diplomacy that that, that they've engaged in uh, since the virus in an attempt to sort of bat off criticism mm. um, and deflect attention from, from their, um, uh, their, their behaviour. Well, exactly right. And the amount of damage that's been caused by this has been absolutely colossal and prodigious. I mean, nobody in their right mind in January or February could have seen this coming. Um, and if you'd said to me in the middle of February, you know, you're going to be locked down as a country, you're going to be unable to go out to the pub, to the restaurants, you're going to have to stay in your home for most of the time. You're not going to see your children for seven or eight weeks. Uh, and until such time as we can tell you to do so, you won't be able to fly anywhere in the world. It's quite extraordinary. It is. It's completely extraordinary. I mean, the, the amount of the, the cost in terms of people's lives, uh, locking them down in their homes, the cost in terms of uh, the financial hit that countries like the UK are going to uh, take. I mean, we've, we've estimated that that could be anything up to and probably exceeding 350 billion pounds and in the longer term because of the the hit to the uh, GDP, gross domestic product, it will be even higher than that. Yes. Um, and borne out over many years. So, I mean, people are, are right to be angry with uh, the regime in China. Yes, exactly right. And your report is fascinating because it says the five eyes, which are, of course, the main sort of powers that we talk about um, uh, with the UK, the United States, Australia, etc., are dependent on China for 831 separate categories of imports. And I think the problem here is that we've become too dependent on China, James. And as we found out, even simple things like there was a company I think I read about uh, who were making um, hand sanitizer, but they couldn't bottle it in their factory because the bottles that they use normally came from China and they couldn't get them into the country yeah i mean in in the last 20 to 20 years we've become progressively dependent on china for a a range of our of our imports and i mean this isn't really the fault of china as such it's also to some extent our fault because we've followed a followed a certain uh type of globalization that has allowed us to offshore so much of our industry Mm. 
uh, to China. Now, sometimes this doesn't really matter. I mean, it, it probably doesn't matter that China produces over 90% of the world's Christmas lights or Christmas decorations. But when it comes to strategic industries and industries of national importance that support our critical infrastructure, our defense capability, um, and the next generation of technologies, then we should be much more reluctant to see this kind of relationship continue or, mm. or, or, or grow, grow more extreme. I suppose one question would be, though, how do we get it back? I mean, how do we reinvent manufacturing in this country uh, when clearly they have got the kind of lock on cheap and cheerful manufacturing so that we can afford to pay less money for things? Yeah, well, we've, we've identified a number of different um, strategic industries. These are industries that support our critical infrastructure, things like communications, both physical, like roads and railways, but also telecommunications, uh, energy, healthcare and public health, transportation systems, water and water supply systems. You could also add to that things like um, critical manufacturing, uh, emergency services, uh, things that support those, food and agriculture, uh, things that support information technology, government facilities, all of those kinds of strategic um, areas of, of vital importance to our economy. Uh, I think that's where we should put our emphasis on if we seek to draw back some of those manufacturing industries. Right. And in addition, in addition to those, we also need to focus on, and perhaps even more so, the areas that are going to power up the fourth industrial revolution, which which is now underway. Um, things like artificial intelligence and machine learning, autonomous robotics. Um, computing, hardware of the next generation, synthetic biology, uh, various nanotechnologies and quantum technologies. Uh, we should be doing everything in our power to try and regain the initiative and uh, and uh, become leading manufacturers mm. where those kinds of uh, areas are, are. But would now, that mean that people here in this country would be paying more for those products? Not necessarily, no, because, I mean, this is a, this is a kind of a complicated area, but um, we think that the time is right for a form of, uh, forms of decoupling, uh, to decouple ourselves from China. Now, that sounds really negative, um, the idea that you simply cut trade. But in some areas, we don't need to worry, as I said earlier, things like Christmas decorations and maybe shoes and clothing and, right. and things that are not particularly important. But in those more important areas that I've just outlined, we need to uh, in, in, engage a sort of or create a national industrial strategy, a national infrastructure strategy to create new infrastructure at the national level that allows us to compete against uh, China in the future. And we shouldn't also uh, lose sight of the fact that as China becomes more developed and it's moved from being a low income to a middle income and it's on the cusp of becoming a higher income country, I mean, production there will become more expensive. So we'll need to diversify our supply chains anyway. And part of that will, will involve bringing back certain manufacturing to the UK and to other um, free or democratic countries that we can rely on and trust um, because of new technologies make it, uh, make it cheaper to produce there uh, using you know, autonomous systems, um, robotics and, and mm. so on and so forth. Right. I mean, obviously, the Huawei conversation that we've been ha having for the best part of the last year, probably, uh, is still not really resolved. I, every time I, I mention them, I always say to myself, I'm not actually sure where we are with this particular deal, because as much as the government tells us that we appear to be going ahead with them, um, the Americans are recommending that we don't. Um, and obviously, this has sort of changed the, 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 the dial, hasn't it? Well, I, I think this will certainly focus attention in the UK and other countries as well, not only the Five Eyes, but also even in, in Europe. We've also heard noises there that, 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 for example, France and Germany are keen to regain a degree of sovereign autonomy over their key manufacturing uh, industries. And with Germany's um, in, industrial base being what it is, mm. they'll be very keen to, um, to prevent China from gaining a further sort of foothold in the, in the future industrial and economic areas. Um, so I think that that is something that we're going to have to review because of the way in which China has responded to the COVID-19 crisis. Mm. And to no small extent, um, it didn't take precautions that allowed the disease to be sort of thrust onto the world and affect us countries in Europe and in North America far worse than almost anywhere else. No, of course. And the difficulty, I suppose, as well, is that there might be those in the West, in the US particularly and here, who say, well, if we do start punishing China, what will they then do? Will they have the, uh, the wherewithal or the capability to damage us economically? Well, I, I mean, in some respects, yes, because they could withhold, um, you know, withhold supplies. But that would be also very detrimental to them because they, were, they depend on the investment that we provide and our, our markets, mm. which are among the biggest in the world, um, to procure the goods that they're making. So there is a degree of kind of codependency. But nevertheless, it's better for us. Um, to be as independent from them, I think, as possible, not least because they've shown themselves to be an increasingly 
um, authoritarian um, and revisionist regime. And we've had a number of different concerns about China over the last five or six years, whether it's in the South China Sea and what they've been doing there, or whether it's in relation to our close partners and allies, Japan, America, mm. you know, even Vietnam, um, Australia. Um, uh, so we need to be much more reluctant to to kind of coax them into the international system because they'll try and get into the system on their own terms. Um, and, and that is something that we need to be very, very um, uh, careful of. Yeah. And is there any way possibly that somehow China can be held to account by the rest of the world's governments, like perhaps the, the G20 or the G8 or something like that? Is there any capability that we could do that um, if they're not interested? Well, there, there is certainly capability to, on our part, to, for example, we've we've argued that we need to even seek compensation from mm. them through various legal channels, and they do potentially exist. Um, but there are also other options. For example, uh, this idea of a of an international inquiry um, to work out exactly how the virus, uh, I mean, COVID nineteen, how it spread. Um, and what the uh, Chinese regime's mm. role was, both at the regional and the national level in China, in, in, in trying to cover that up in the late stages of last year and early this year. Mm. Um, and, and I think that would certainly um, throw a light onto some of, their, their, um, some of the regime's uh, actions. Um, but it requires really concerted international effort, led by countries like the UK and the yeah. US and Australia and Japan, to try and push this um, forward and to do it in such a way that it actually works rather than get sort of dug down into the weeds mm. um, and, and lost along the way. Yeah, because there seems to be a bizarre kind of um, deference shown to some uh, Chinese officials by the Western media, for example. I saw Sky News interviewing um, the Chinese ambassador to the UK the other day, I think it was last week, uh, and they were gleefully quoting him saying there was no cover-up. And I'm thinking to myself, well, he would say that, wouldn't he? He's hardly going to say there was a cover-up. You know, why would you take him at his word? Yeah, I mean, I think that any official from any country should be treated in exactly the same way that officials in, in the UK or the US would be treated, mm. I mean, put under the same degree of, 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 of scrutiny. I mean, you can make arguments as to whether that's, uh, you know, whether that goes too far sometimes, but there should certainly be no holding back just because an official comes from another country. Uh, I mean, if they're on our TV uh, spreading misinformation or distorting uh, facts in, in accordance with their own national uh, interest, then we should certainly be prepared to root out the, uh, the you know, root out what they're doing. Yes, I think that's absolutely right. So, I mean, what would you suggest if you had the ear of the Boris Johnson government uh, right now that they should do? Um, well, I, I would say, you know, that the, the, the prime minister has and the government has announced that it wants to level up the country. And, and I think part of this levelling up does actually involve, you know, reshoring some key manufacturing industries and making sure that we get a foothold in the next generation of, of industrial activity. So this idea of levelling up has to go hand in hand with this other idea of decoupling from China and making sure that we have a, a really robust national industrial and national infrastructure strategy to develop the, the, you know, the, the economy of the future. And if we can gain a foothold in that economy, as we did in the first and second industrial revolutions in the 19th and early 20th centuries, then we'll be in a very a robust position in the 21st century to compete with countries like China and any other potential competitor that comes along the way. Right. Well, let's hope, James, that you can get yourself into Downing Street and tell them all that and we can get on with it because I think we desperately need some form of common sense returning uh, to our relationship with China. James, thanks very much indeed. James Rogers, Director of the Global Britain Programme at the Henry Jackson Society. You must admit, he has a point. You must admit, we have to do something about China. We may have a little poll uh, which we could run today in the show. Uh, we will be asking your opinion on that because I think the time has now come to start to take this very, very seriously. We cannot ever possibly have this happen again and we must punish the Chinese uh, for what they have done to the rest of the world. It's as simple as that. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. 
$45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio, the independent republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Welcome back to the independent republic of Mike Graham. Let's get one thing straight. China is to blame for this particular pandemic. China is to blame for all of the deaths around the world. China is now to blame for the infection of five million people in the world today. Not all of them have died. Many of them have recovered. But businesses are dying. People's livelihoods are disappearing down the toilet thanks to the lockdown. People who used to fly around in aeroplanes are now being made redundant. Rolls-Royce have just announced they're going to lay off 9,000 people. The Chinese government is an absolute and utter disgrace. The idea that somehow the ambassador to the United Kingdom could go on Sky News and say, but we didn't have a cover-up and they believe him is simply an absolute piece of ridiculousness that I can barely staggeringly mention. The bottom line for me is that China has cost our economy alone something in the tune of £300 billion. What needs to happen is that we get that money back from China. We do not wish to be in hock to China. We do not wish to be trading with a country that is willing to pass a deadly virus around the world without even giving us any kind of warning. The country that told the World Health Organization that basically there was no transmission from human to human on January the 14th. The country that has caused the deaths of hundreds of thousands of people around the world. It's not simply good enough for them to say, well, we didn't mean to do it. It's certainly not good enough for them to say, oh, but we gave you lots of PPE and lots of equipment to fight the virus when you got it. It's just not good enough for them not to compensate us. It's not good enough for them to continue to do business with us as if nothing has changed. And I think I need you to support me in this. So we're going to run a poll today on whether we should charge China £300 billion to repay us for all of the hurt, for all of the deaths, for all of the heartache and for all of the financial ruin that the coronavirus has caused us and the rest of the world. It's as simple as that. You know it makes sense because this is the independent republic of Mike Graham. Let's go to the phones. Collins in Glasgow. Hi, Colin. Hi, uh, hi Mike. God, uh, it's, uh, I had one to Paul with that statement. I don't 100% agree with you that uh, we should get uh, 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 money back, etc. Yeah, I think uh, we should. Uh, oh, definitely, definitely. Definitely. Um, well, uh, well uh, my point is uh, with is, uh, the teaching unions. The teaching unions are actually, uh, again, the unions are going to cost jobs here. Is that, uh, the government will be pressurised or pressed into more into online uh, tutoring, homeschooling, uh, etc. Yeah. And at certain ages, they can easily go uh, onto the computer and learn probably far better. Yeah. Uh, but I heard on the, the Kevin Southern show uh, with uh, Carol Waterman that uh, getting great, great strides on her part. Yes, of, that's right. Uh, and it's like uh, the, how can I say, the, the standard of mathematics has gone like from low. Right up to very high Yep. So you actually probably have great advances in, in education by online uh, 
Yes, I think I think Colin, you're absolutely right because that's the one thing that an awful lot of state schools have not done. They simply haven't given the kids enough to do. I would accept if the teachers say, "Look, we can't go back to school yet because it's a bit too dangerous. We don't know enough about the science, so let's just work from home." Well, that's fine, but then do some work. Don't not do any work, which is what an awful lot of them have been doing. Let's talk to Hajinda, uh, who's in Warwick. Hi, Hajinda. Hi, hi. How, how are you? you? Doing? I'm very well, sir. How are you doing? Very good, thank you. Very good. What can I do for you? Yes, I, I'm quite fascinated to listen to this blame game that has now kicked off. And uh, what we have here is uh, over the period of the, the, the virus, we saw the, the herd immunity idea. And then I think there was a change in the government's policy. Yeah. Uh, clear change, which came about once the uh, model, the Ferguson, infamous now Ferguson model, came out. Well, there's two Ferguson models, isn't there? Because the first one was the 500,000 dead worst case scenario model. Then there was the 20,000 model, uh, which has now been proven just as wrong as the first one. (laughs) Yes, yes. So, I mean, so, 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 you know, what's happening now, I think, is the government will probably want to blame the scientists. And I think that's what they're doing. But the problem we have is that the government does have to take responsibility if it did indeed rely on this model and that this model did have such an impact on shaping policy. Yeah then the government does have to take some of that responsibility. They can't throw uh, the buck at the scientists, although I do agree that this model is is probably one of the biggest software errors in history. Well, the difficulty is, right, Hajinder, I don't know what your your business is, but they seem to be doing an awful lot uh, in this country now, uh, in almost every arena, based on these models that people put forward. They're not always scientific models. They sometimes might be statistical models or they might be economic models from economists, you know. But they seem to be working on these models all the time. How many times a day do you hear, oh, yeah, well, we've worked on this model and this is why we're following this particular course of action? And I, I think you're right. Of course the government must take responsibility. But if they're following the science and that's their reasoning and that yet the science continues to change then I'm not sure that following the science is necessarily going to be the way forward, is it? Well, well, no, they can't have it both ways. You can't say you're following the science and then not follow the science. What's happened is early on, yes, we didn't know much about this, uh, this pandemic. We yeah. didn't know how it operated and so forth. I, I get that. Mm. And modelling is probably the way to try and work out what might happen. But things materialised very quickly. We had study after study. I mean, my, my job is I, I'm an associate professor at the University of Warwick. It's not in right. this area, so don't claim... Uh, expertise in epidemiology or anything like that but i I kind of know how models work and how the science works and as time progressed things started to become clearer Mm. we had oxford you know and and very high-ranked institutions around the world telling us how this virus is working and then our strategy ought to have responded accordingly it's like the but our strategy did change though hajinda so presumably it changed with every piece of extra knowledge that they got because they never didn't follow the science they continued to follow the science but the science then altered what they should do yes and 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 i'll give you an example so you know there's a lot of research out there now about children and covid19 and by and large almost the majority of it is saying that it is safe to send the children back. Yes. And that is the science. It appears the government is following. And, 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 and you know, and, and the question is whether it's kind of responded soon enough to the kind of, you know, all the research that was coming out. Uh, and, and that's, you know, that's basically the, the point I'm trying to make mm. is that you can't have it both ways. You can't say you're following the science. And then as the science is materialising, not follow it. I think yes. what happened, my personal view is that as soon as, uh, that it became clear to the government that this model was a bit of a disaster. I think that's probably when the policy started yes. to change a no, bit. Listen, the there's no, listen, there's no doubt that. in my mind, Hajinda, that they, they changed their policies on the advice of the scientists, and I, and I totally accept that. But I, I think it's important to register with people in their minds because an awful lot of this is about perception in terms of how a government is perceived and how it's seen. Uh, is that I think it's important to pass to the public the knowledge that we now have, which is that not all scientific decisions are absolute. You know, they don't always know what's about to happen. They don't always get their predictions right. And sometimes these models are entirely useless. Absolutely. I mean, what you have with a model is you have so many variables and so many ranges and parameters going into it that any one of those uh, kind of parameters being wrong or, you know, us, us, us being a bit more... 
uh, over enthusiastic mm. in the way we interpret those can get the, uh, the, the it's kind of garbage in garbage right? it goes back to that doesn't it yes. kind of basic computer science principle yeah um, and, and, and that's what it is. But the other problem we have here is that how do you now get everyone back to work when you've scared the living daylight? Yeah, well, that's a very good question. And I think the worry that I have is that because of the way that government operates, you know, they couldn't probably... I mean, can you imagine if, if they'd come out at the beginning of this and said, look, we don't really know precisely what the science is telling us. Um, so we're going to do this for a while uh, until such time as we get told to do something else. I mean, you can't run a government like that. People would be running for the hills, you know. So they've had to do this scaremongering, I suppose, in order to make people realise that this is quite a, a big deal. Otherwise, everyone would have been walking around and doing all the same things that they ever did if they hadn't locked down. You know, if we'd done what Peter Hitchens wanted us to do, which is not to lock down the economy and shut restaurants and pubs and bars and football and all of that, I don't think that would have been wise at all. I think that would have been a disaster. So I think people just have to now try and understand understand that the threat that was around six weeks ago is not as bad now as it was then yep totally agree well listen harjinder that's why you're listening to this show because you're a very commonsensical individual thank you so much for calling uh, very very intelligent audience we've got here today as every day and it's growing by the day as well which proves you're also incredibly intelligent the independent republic of mike graham on talk radio Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. It is that time of the day, just after 12.30. We've heard the news headlines and now it's time for some homeschooling. So get your children uh, around the radio, around the Alexa, around the television if you're watching on YouTube, uh, which is now sensational uh, coming from this new studio that we've got. And we're about to talk to David Wooding, who is, of course, normally now known as the uh, political editor of The Sun on Sunday, a man uh, who's normally talking to us about politics, about question Prime Minister's questions. But today uh, he's actually going to be talking to us about his real favourite subject, which is classical music. David, a very good afternoon to you. Afternoon, Mike. Thank you so much for uh, for doing this for us, because I know, and I've known you for probably more years than I care to remember, that your soft spot has always been classical music. And I mean, I guess I suppose the best way for me to ask you to introduce all of this is to explain to, to, to kids what classical music actually is. Well classical, music is, well, classical music is a term that we use for all serious music, when in fact, classical music um, is just a small period. If you look at Johann Sebastian Bach and Scarlatti and Vivaldi, they're really Baroque composers. And then, then after, Be after Beethoven, you went into what's called the Romantic period. So really... Uh, classical music, strictly speaking, is for those composers who in the, who in the uh, early to mid, towards the late end of the 18th century, were composing to a certain form, the classical form. Uh, and Mozart, of course, was the king of that. Yes. And so did they sort of invent it? I mean, was this an invention of sort of uh, modern uh, 18th century Western European philosophy, if you like? Yes, um, I mean music developed, of course, um, in the Renaissance. Uh, that, that's why that, that's why all the musical notation and, and instructions are all in Italian, even to this day. You know, we read of Allegro mm. and uh, Andante. Um, all the instructions are in Italian for that reason. Um, but but when they moved from Baroque into classical music, what what, what effectively happened was that a, a form came to music. Before you had a piece by Bach or Handel. And if you ever listen to the music of Handel and Bach, you listen to a piece of music and you'll get a music and you'll get a feeling from it. You'll feel happy, you'll feel it's a slow, mournful piece, or you'll feel it's a, a bit of a dance. Mm. Um, but when you get to Mozart and, and Beethoven, the pieces change mood dramatically, mood swings and different things come into them. And what happened with Mozart, uh, he, he took to the nth degree the sonata form. The sonata was written mainly for a piano, a piece in three movements, fast movements, fast, slow, fast. And then it became the symphony, which was written in sonata form, which has four movements, slow, uh, fast, slow, a dance movement, and then a finale, which is usually fast. And Haydn, who wrote 104 symphonies, um, was the master of the symphonic um, uh, form. Now, the symphonic form is quite simple. In the first movement, you have a thing called the exposition, where the composer plays a tune, and then he plays, and then he plays a second subject. Which the first one's in the tonic, and the second one is in, is in, it moves moves up five 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 tones. 
uh, on the keyboard, and then he plays around in the middle of them with the with what's known as the ex is known as the uh, um, development sits the development. So you've got the exposition, the development, where they fiddle around with the tunes, and he shows his great art playing upside down, back to front, two tunes together, two tunes together, and from that, that's where it grows all these new melodies and new new sounds. And then we get the recapitulation. Well, what that that is symphonic form, which Mozart mastered, and he wrote forty-one symphonies in that way. But the biggest thing he's known for is is opera. He wrote twenty of those. Yes. And I mean, some of these works are very complex, aren't they? So, I mean, was it the case that as they kind of moved through the various uh, different, um, I suppose, concertos and then onto symphonies and things like you said, and sonatas, that they just kind of learned it as they went along? Did somebody kind of set, set all that out for them? Oh, well, of course, Mozart was a... Um, um was born to a musical family. His father, Leopold, took him on a grueling tour of Europe when he was only a, a tiny boy. He, he was born in 1756, and he was in London. Uh, for There's a statue to him in, near Victoria where, 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 as a little boy holding a violin mm. when he was about seven or eight and stayed in London for a while. He was taken to Berlin and Vienna and all over the place because he was a, a, a child prodigy who could play anything. Um, and and he, he would take a little simple tune and then play it all sorts of different clever ways he was an amazing young and a prodigious composer as well died when he was 34 um, and what what he did if you like the, the, the importance of Mozart and Beethoven, Mozart and Beethoven although they were born um, something like um, 14 15 years apart um, and never met they were one was the uh, I'll say Mozart is the Elvis Presley of, pop, uh, of classical music. <laughs> he was the king. He was the king of the classical movements. Like Elvis Presley came along and became the king of rock and roll. Mm. Mozart was the man who took classical music to the nth degree and made the ultimate in classical ultimate in classical music. Beethoven was the Beatles. He moved it onto something different. So of course, like in the Beatles, where you get your your early 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 um, love me do and rock and roll type tunes. Mm. Then when you got to uh, the, the, what's the what's it called? Um, Abby, Strawberry Fields. Abby, yeah, Sergeant Abby, Pepper. Uh, yeah, I, I, I'm thinking. Sergeant Pepper's yeah. Lonely Hearts Club Band. That was a wow. What have he done? What has he done here? Beethoven did the same. He wrote two. Same. He wrote two classical symphonies, and then on the third symphony, the E flat symphony, the Eroica symphony. It's twice as long. Mozart symphony is about twenty minutes. Mm. This one was forty minutes. Then when he came to the great uh, ninth symphony, the choral symphony, for the first time, he introduced voices, uh, a choir into a symphony. This is groundbreaking stuff. And all, not only that, but with the technicality of the music and the way he developed the themes and the way he, he, the way he, he moved from one thing to another uh, was completely different. In the Sixth Symphony, the pastoral in F, he brought in uh, pastoral themes, but we have a band performing, um, like in a country band. Then you have a thunderstorm. And then at the end of the thunderstorm, you get the, that famous uh, hymn of Thanksgiving after the, the thunderstorm. So he took music on and developed and started a completely new movement in, 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 classical, music, in classical music. So what you actually have is um, one who was the king of, of one movement and one who took it on and developed another movement. So they are both masters and there's an argument among classical music fans over who was the greatest composer of all time mm. many people say Mozart many people say Beethoven yes and I suppose in those days as well when when the music was first being unveiled the only way to hear it was to hear it live because there was presumably no recording of it for quite some years Yes, um, and of course uh, there were no uh, arts funding in the way where we have it today. That relied on the emperors and the counts and the, the wealthy people who, for whom music was a was then uh, a luxury that they could afford. Mm. And these composers ha had patrons who who kept them uh, kept them alive, kept them fed. Um, right. Um, and so, yes, uh, even going to more modern times, I, I was reading recently that something like the planets performed by our great English composer, Gustav Holst, born in Cheltenham. Uh, he wrote this thing called the planets, which is a very popular piece of music. Mm. Um, a lot of people in here would have only heard the piano transcription of that because to go to hear a classical orchestra and to put one on was, was far more costly and, and, yes. and heard far less, far less often. 
That would be interesting, wouldn't it, to do a sort of unplugged version of one of these symphonies where it's just one guy with a piano? Because it might come as a big surprise to you, but I was a bit of a violinist in my youth, and I did uh, A level. I went up to O level, I think, uh, violins at the at the uh, Royal College of Music. I used to go down to uh, outside of um, the, the Albert Hall and do and be very nervous and do these uh, recitals uh, when I was about twelve and thirteen. I chucked it in when I got a Saturday job, basically. Um, but I'm a great aficionado of, of classical music. One of my favourite places to go as a kid with my parents was Kenwood in Hampstead, where you could go and sit on a blanket and uh, have a bit of a picnic and listen to. Uh, it used to be. Um, uh, the uh, I think it used to be you know the famous uh, symphony uh, which ends up with the uh, with all the fireworks going off I can't remember what it's called now it's, it's gone out of my head um, but you know the, uh, um, the 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 performance in, in that bowl at Kenwood where all the uh, the orchestra were and then there's a lake and everybody's sitting around and it was lovely beautiful thing to do yeah they're great the great afternoons out um, some of these festivals are, are a, a gateway for many people to hear classical music uh, what, what you really need though is to spend the time with our busy lives these days spend the time to sit down and actually switch off and listen to something listen to something properly it's mm. a great oasis in our busy lives to spend even if it's at home with a cd yeah. 40 minutes where nobody's talking and you're sitting listening to music uh, and i think that's that's what you have to do. This is not music you can play in the background while you're going around doing your mm. doing the dishes right. or, or hoovering or whatever you do when you're in lockdown. Um, even I don't put it on at the moment. I'm working from home, so I I have to spend time when I can sit down and listen to it properly. Right. And can there still be people classified as classical musicians or classical composers, if you like? Because thinking of somebody like Philip Glass, for example... Uh, who, who composes music which is modern but which is effectively sort of mm. classified as classical yeah people call it classical music it, it's minimalist music it's it's another movement within the, i mean after beethoven um, um music went into all sorts of different directions we had um, we had the uh, the Stravinsky's of this world who went on rhythms. So instead mm. of using common time rhythm, four beats to the bar or waltz time, three, four, the two most common rhythms, they went into seven fours and five fours and 12 eights and all sorts of things that you, you, you don't often use. Um, and, and then you had the second Viennese school, which was Arnold, which was Arnold Schoenberg, Anton Webern and Alban Berg, who decided, why do we need to stick to the, uh, the, 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 the the keys of C and D and E and E flat. Why don't we just use all the 12 notes in the scale without any of these rules? Mm. So they tore up the rule book and then started playing serial music, which um, my wife refers to as plinky plonk music sometimes. <laughs> but they went they went down the tonal route and others went down the uh, down the, the route of, of rhythms, of, of rhythms. And, and so you all these different factions, uh, people sort of decided that they could well, what's the point of sticking to these rules? So the form of which, back, back to what we were saying about Beethoven and Mozart, the form of which Mozart was the master and then Beethoven took it on, was eventually torn up. And uh, people now have, there are no rules. We can we can write what we like and, um, and we've got a much, much wider canvas and richer um, type of music. Yeah, being, fascinating. Being created have you got... Today. Well, as, as ever with our homeschooling section, you've, you've absolutely enlightened uh, the entire world with your knowledge, so thank you for that. Can I ask if you've got, finally, a, f a favourite piece of music that you play whenever you oh. want to? Oh, gosh, that's difficult. Um, you, you go through phases. Uh, I, if, if I allowed a few, I mean, I, I, I'm, I, I love Bach. I love Bach. There's so much Bach stuff. Um, the Bach Mass in B minor. Um, of Beethoven, um, the, the G major piano concerto, that's the fourth. Uh, of Mozart, probably the final piano concerto. That's the um, the, the one in B flat, Kirkel five nine five. But if, if, to move away from those two, um, Wagner, I'd go for the Ring Cycle. If I had to pick one of the four operas, Gotterdammerung. But then this, but then this. There's just a mass of stuff that you, you listen to. It's it's virtually impossible. Yeah. Benjamin Britten, Vorjak. You cannot pin me down to say who's my favourite composer. No, but, I mean... Uh, yes, but uh, all the Bs, Brahms is brilliant, Beethoven, Bruckner, um, um, 
And uh, Britain and Bach, yeah. And definitely. Beethoven, yeah. Brilliant stuff. David, thank you so much. David Wooding, uh, classical music enthusiast, it says here. Well, I think you can tell uh, he's more than an enthusiast. It's a bit like saying uh, to me, what's your favourite song, I suppose? It's quite difficult. Talk radio across the UK, online, on DAB and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday, on Talk Radio via DAB online or via the Talk Radio app. And if you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.